It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, Good news. I. Feel better than I've felt in a while. So uh, yesterday I got an email from a listener saying it was a little discordant or strange to have a ad for Alibaba on the podcast. I was talking to Hal Brands about how China is a threat. And he was like, maybe I'm missing something. And so I wrote back to him and said, yeah, um, you're absolutely right. Um, it is discordant. And it is also... Uh, and you are also missing something, which is that most of those professional radio sounding ads, we don't negotiate those directly. Those come through um, Spotify and they're fed into the show and um, things are going better with them than they were with our old uh, partner. But um, sometimes weird stuff comes through. I've now heard it on commentary and someone told me they heard it on our podcast, there's this ad for special summer savings from JCPenney um, that uh, gets fed out programmatically to people's podcasts, including mine and, again, commentary. And that's that's fine. I, you know, I got no problem with JCPenney. I got no problem with a, with a good bargain at JCPenney. But they're Spanish language ads. And it just seems to me, I am sure there are some Spanish speakers who listen to my podcast or the commentary podcast. I am sure there are probably even some native Spanish speakers, probably not a ton, but some, you know, great. It's wonderful. But my hunch is, is that they, um, they also understand English because it would be a pretty weird thing to listen to uh, me or John Bedoritz or whoever talking for like an hour with some other English speaker about uh, public policy and politics stuff in a language that you don't understand. Like, I just don't listen to a lot of Russian language or Spanish language podcasts. I'm sure some of them are great. But, you know, so anyway, uh, sometimes there are misfires with the ads that come in. And if you are um, a person with a business interest or um, some other interest that... um, you think would um, be more appropriate to advertise on one of our podcasts, you should reach out to us um, because we are now with our new arrangement, we are allowed to do um, direct deals with certain places. And if you just want to buy up all those time slots and crowd out all the silly ads and just have, you know, wonderful ads for um, Roomba or whatever, uh, let us know. That would be great. So, um, it's Friday morning. Job numbers look good. I have 
nothing too exciting or interesting to say about the job numbers, except to say, I think the economy is just generally wacky. I got into this a little bit with, um, Dave Bonson, um, or maybe it was on the dispatch podcast. Um, or maybe it was that apparition. I can't remember. Anyway, um, I think grand theories of this economy are going to sort of founder on the facts a bit, whether they come from the left or the right, just simply because I don't, I don't think, you know, I mean, I don't think you repeal the laws of economics um, or even the rules of economics, because I don't think a lot of the things that we think are laws of economics are probably contingent or contextual um, and don't necessarily apply across the sweep of human history because they are built up on a lot of other sort of foundational customary kind of things. Um, and that's why, because, you know, liberal democratic capitalism is a construct. It's, and I don't mean that in some sort of new agey, you know, Foucaultian left wing kind of way. I mean, it's project, right? I mean, it requires a huge amount of social trust. It requires a huge amount of, uh, of maintenance and, and work in terms of educating the public about what to expect from things. Um, about enforcing certain norms and rules and institutions. Um, and, you know, so for all I know, some of the normal laws of economics or certainly the expectations of, of normal economics as we know them um, probably don't apply in the same way in ancient Rome or, you know, Ming, China or wherever. I think that the coming out of the pandemic with all the dislocations to not just supply chains, but to people's expectations and, and life patterns, right? I mean, they're always poor, like dry cleaners and, and coffee shops and those kinds of places that are either dying or closed up because people just don't go downtown enough um, to sustain them. You know, the occupancy rates in lots of buildings is just off the charts. Um, and even if people do go downtown, they don't feel like they have to put on suits anymore. I mean, I'd be very interested to know like where necktie sales are over the last five years. And so anyway, you know, you have huge pent up demand. It's sort of like coming out of World War II. It was kind of, I mean, it was all, it was not all, but it was largely all upside uh, because you had all these people coming home, lots of pent up demand, lots of industry that could be um, switched to, uh, the domestic, you know, commercial economy instead of a war economy. You had lots of demand from abroad where industrial bases were destroyed. And it would be very silly to sort of talk about the economics of, say, 48 to 62 or 64 as if that's what normal economics were. And the irony of that is that lots and lots of people do talk that way. You know, the left has been talking about how great the economy of the 1950s was, and that's the economy that America should live in um, for years and years and years. And the right, you know, I mean, this is an old Briggs-Lindsay line was that, you know, for many people on the right, uh, they want to work in the 1950s and many, I mean, for many people on the left, they want to work in the 1950s. And for many people on the right, they want to live there. And, uh, you know, the 1950s was a snapshot um, it happened. It was real. The, econ the economic stuff was real. It's not a mirage. It's not a myth or anything like that. But it was dependent upon specific circumstances at a specific moment in global economic history and extrapolating from it ways to organize a domestic economy when 
uh, you know, Europe has been rebuilt. Japan has been rebuilt. China has been built because it really wasn't a, a rebuilding thing for China. Um, is just sort of silly. And anyway, the reason I bring that up is that like the the shock to the system um, in all sorts of ways that the pandemic brought, and then um, coming out of the pandemic and all the responses to it, which had their own knock on effects. I just don't. F- I feel like a little more humility from everybody is in order. I mean, the left just needs to stop, just give up for a generation at least talking about how inflation isn't ever a problem or isn't a thing anymore. They just need to stop. It's just, it's, it's just not an argument you can make anymore. And I think the right, you know, you know, using my conversation with Dave Bonson the other day, uh, needs to um, update its theory that just printing money causes inflation. Um, because we've seen a lot of money thrown into the economy over the last $31 trillion in debt, you know, which is, as, as David pointed out, that's just the red ink, right? I mean, the actual spending, because revenues have often gone up as well, the actual, actual excess spending over the last, um, you know, three decades, four decades has been enormous too, including the spending that we've actually paid for. And we didn't see runaway inflation until we came out of the pandemic. And I mean, runaway is a bit of an exaggerated term, but we saw stubborn, hot, stubbornly high inflation. Um, I think David makes a very good case about some of, if not most of the sources of it. Um, I think he sometimes downplays the importance of psychology in all this, though I'm sure he has a very smart answer to that. And it's funny, uh, another a longtime e-friend of mine uh, was like, you know, maybe I should get an economist who disagrees with David on the remnant. They can ha- hash it out in front of me. Um, you know, sort of like I'm the joker and I break the pool cue in half and say, we're going to have tryouts. I'm kind of open to that because, you know, but as, as I was explaining to my friend, and I think I've made this point on here before, there are some issues that I don't feel qualified to take robust confident stands and one of them is monetary policy and part of the reason for it is I've got really smart friends who have very who follow this stuff very very closely and come out on different sides of the questions involved and I do not have the expertise to adjudicate between them about who is right and who is wrong and you know this is one of the things that people in my line of work do is that they um they rely on expert friends about things for a lot of stuff. And, you know, you have to do your own homework to tell whether, you know, to do your own due diligence and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, you accumulate, you know, when I was at NR, really at AEI, you know, you accumulate um, a sort of portfolio, a word maybe we'll come back to later, um, a portfolio of friends, of experts, of, 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 you know, sort of brain trust that you can go to on certain issues who you know well enough from their writings and from, from them personally um, to trust them. And it's just very rare in, you know, given my ideological leanings and all that to have people who come out on different sides of a major public policy issue the way they do on monetary policy. So I always just have a certain amount of humility about it. Um, anyway, on the spending thing, it just occurs to me, maybe I'll write about this today. I don't know. Um, you know, speaking of humility, 
If you go back, I guarantee you I can find quotes from Democrats and, you know, even some Republicans um, about major spending initiatives and how they're going to be transformative, how they were going to redefine things, how they were going to solve problems and, you know, and put simmering problems to rest so we can move forward as we build the bridge into the 21st century and provide unity and unified hopefulness for hopeful unification and all sorts of things, right? Um, you know, fundamental transformation, um, all the rest. And you can certainly find quotes from all sorts of pundits and writers who boosted um, these uh, these claims and sort of swept up behind the elephant of various politicians to make the case that these claims were in fact true. Um, you know, whether it's infrastructure, Obamacare, no child left behind, um, yada, 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 right? And I'm open to suggestions here, but like, can someone point to me, point me to where one of these supposedly transformative sweeping public policy initiatives that costs a lot of money, that was that the money was justified because it was going to solve something, right? Um, have any of them done that, right? I mean, just think about it this way. Like, we live in a society right now where a lot of people are bummed out and sad. Um, you know, rates of depression are very high. Suicide rates are very high. Satisfaction with the, the economy is very low, wrong track numbers are very high. Uh, you know, pick your uh, indicator. And, um, you know, people believe in, you know, the problem of racism. I haven't checked the poll numbers recently. I think they're probably less dramatic than a lot of people um, might think they are, but they're probably, you know, people probably still think racism is a huge problem. And I'm not saying it's not a huge problem. I'm just saying that if we spent, I don't know, where do you want to go back to? The war on poverty? The New Deal, you know, the <laughs> federal government has been steadily spending trillions of dollars on all sorts of these supposedly structural problems with the purported intent and, and promise of eliminating these structural problems. Where, where's the beef, you know? I mean, where's the evidence that, you know, are, um, I mean, has... I, again, I'm being, I'm being, I'm just being intellectually honest here. Has, uh, has on net medical, uh, healthcare spending gone down since Obamacare? Um, I feel if it, if it's been dramatic, I would have heard people bragging about that, right? Has public health improved dramatically? I remember this was a big fight back in the time where I remember I wrote several columns about all this stuff where, you know, Bill Clinton, and all sorts of other supporters of Obamacare would say, look, we have um, a low life expectancy in this country compared to Europe. Um, and it's because of our healthcare system. And, um, and that's why we have to pass Obamacare. Bloomberg made this point. Clinton made this point. I'm sure Obama made the point. And I remember Ezra Klein and a lot of those kinds of guys made those points. And then the second Obamacare looked like it was going to pass, all of a sudden the arguments switched and people were saying, um, oh, you shouldn't expect, that should not be one of the metrics about whether or not Obamacare is a success. Well, if you're pitching something as a solution to a problem and then you get your solution, you get your proposed remedy 
um, why you can't hold the proposed, you know, why you can't hold that against, you know, as a measurement of six, as a yardstick um, was just a total mystery to me. Now, again, I thought it was a dumb argument at the time. I wrote about it. I wrote about it in my underrated second book. Um, you know, obviously the healthcare system has some significance, some relevance towards life expectancy in the United States. I suspect that the most relevant agency, you know, aspect of, of public health in this country for, uh, for life expectancy is probably the mental health sphere. Um, uh, but that's a conversation for another day. Really, we're seeing life expectancy go down recently. Um, we spent a lot of money on healthcare reforms and um, and also, you know, mental health stuff. I mean, I, and again, I, it's all complicated. My only point is, is that where is the where's the payoff for all this money? I mean, we're constantly hearing how we need to pay, we need to spend X amount more to fix a problem. And the second the money gets spent, they say, well, you can't expect us to have fixed the problem. We're just trying to make progress with the problem, blah, 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 blah. The poverty rate, you know, since the war on poverty, it's down somewhat, particularly among old people. That was, you know, my old boss, Ben Wattenberg, would always point out that that was the real success of the, of the Great Society and the war on poverty was that it brought down poverty among old people dramatically. And that's a perfectly legitimate point in favor of various entitlement programs. Um, you know, I'm not going to get into the little Bastiat, you know, seen and unseen stuff, but um, it's a perfectly fine political argument to make and all the rest. But uh, since then, where, where's, you know, you know, where is the payoff? People, you know, there, there's this conviction among a lot of people on the left that somehow America does not have a robust social safety net. But if you actually look at all welfare, you know, for, for whatever, you know, social safety net spending. I don't want to use pejorative term if it turns people off to my point. Um, at state, local, and federal level, we're not that far off from Scandinavian countries. We spend a lot of money on this stuff. Do we spend it the right way? Do, could we spend it smarter? Obviously. But um, you try to propose reforms to how we spend that money and people say it's outrageous. You know, we're all, we, we have this um, threadbare social safety net and, and how dare you, you know, consider doing such a thing. And so anyway, I, I'm going too long repeating myself, but the idea that somehow government is really good at solving the problems that people who love government think uh, go only government can solve those problems. There's just not a lot of clear cut, obvious evidence that they've had an enormous amount of success with that. And there should be some real humility on the part of left-wingers with sort of utopian aspirations for what government can do. Um, you know, and that goes also with the environmental stuff. Like we could pass the whole Green New Deal tomorrow. The payoffs for the climate globally, even if you accept the models, don't really come online for decades or a lot, like not until like the end of the century. I remember when Kyoto, we were told Kyoto protocol was life or death. And then, you know, the EPPC did the, release the math on it and turned out that like if you would need like 20 Kyotos um, and you would see at the end of the, the century a dropping of like one point centigrade um, in average global temperatures. I mean, uh, 
by all means, make arguments for fighting climate change. Just don't promise people you're going to solve it tomorrow um, if you just get people to get rid of their gas stoves or whatnot. And similarly, you know, humility is always justified on the right. Um, the right is supposed to have a sense of humility about the um, the effects of public policy. Um, you know, you can't talk about, you know, and I don't mean just like Donald Trump promising to end the war in Ukraine 24 hours after he's elected. I mean, you know, um, there's lots of things that conservatives think are really, really easy that turn out to be, you know, hard. And they should know that better than liberals because they're the ones who say government is not um, the solution to a lot of problems and, and all that. At the same time, they should probably show some humility that government is kind of essential to all sorts of, to all sorts of social functions. Um, it's weird how, you know, libertarians are in such bad odor on so many parts of the right. Um, and yet a lot of those, you know, same conservatives have real contempt for um, a lot of the sort of social service functions of the federal government or even, you know, state governments that a lot of people rely on. And um, anyway, I'm, 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 you get it. I'm done with all that. Uh, let's do some punditry. And now that my brain is awake and maybe Adam will have cleaned up some of the mess I just, you know, dropped there. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash remnant. That's tnusa.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, of what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A. 
aframes.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So what was it yesterday? Man, this week is gone. We got news that there is this uh, tape or even tapes where Trump has admitted allegedly that he knew the rules about classification, that he had a classified document in his possession, and that he allegedly said that he would not show it to somebody or release it because he had not gone through the process of declassifying it and he could no longer do so. If that's the case, I think he's in a lot of legal trouble. But I kind of feel like this is, you know, like I get a lot, a lot of crap to this day about like the Hunter Biden laptop garbage and all that kind of thing for not leaping into the narrative that largely turned out to be true. Um, I mean, I, I mean, of the people, the people, you know, the New York Post leapt on the the Hunter Biden laptop story and it turned out to be largely what they purported it to be. I don't think it proves the Biden crime family stuff and all of that. If it did, you know, that laptop has been in the possession of, you know, right wing activists, operatives for a very long time. If there was really a smoking gun on there, it would have been leaked out or released or whatever already. But, um, but, you know, my position was, you know, let's have a little skepticism here. Turned out, I still think that that's a perfectly legitimate and defensible thing to say. Um, but it turned out, you know, that, that the, the laptop was what it was purported to be. Um, I still think the story of how Rudy Giuliani got it is sketchy. Um, and I, I, you know, and that's the thing I get the most grief for is for saying, was it to Jim Treacher uh, that um, I thought it was weird to, to take the story of the providence of that thing at face value. Um, nothing new has come out in a while. So it's probably one of those, you know, really weird things that turns out to be actually what happened. Um, but I would not at all be surprised to find out that there's, you know, there's more to that story um, down the road. Anyway, I kind of feel like the similar skepticism, even though it's contrary, you know, to my biases and my priors, I'm trying to be honest and consistent about this. I think getting out over your skis on this story, it may in fact turn, I find it utterly plausible, right? Um, but until we actually hear the tape um, or we actually hear from someone who has heard the tape rather than hear from reporters who talk to people who allegedly have heard the tape, um, we should just sort of withhold judgment because it's not like the media didn't get way out over its skis a bunch of times with the Russia stuff um, before. And um, I guess I guess this is a good point for me to address this thing that happened a couple of weeks ago. Uh, after, what was it? Um, after the Durham report came out, um, Somebody found a clip of me on ABC's This Week saying how um, if you're, I haven't even watched the clip, but the quote from it was, um, if it's Jim Comey's word against Donald Trump's word, I think Comey wins 10 times out of 10. My recollection was I was making a political point about who had more credibility with the public. Um, but regardless, I stand by that. Um, doesn't mean that Trump is always wrong about things, but I think Trump has no credibility. I think Trump is a, a fundamentally dishonest guy who admits to how he lies. Um, he has 
lied a lot about the Mar-a-Lago document stuff. And the only reason I know that he's lied a lot is not, not because I know exactly what happened, but he has offered so many different explanations that if one of them is true, the other ones have to be lies. Um, he lies as a matter of strategy. He lies as a matter of course. He is, you know, a, uh, and I can't tell you how many times I wrote about how Bill Clinton lies um, constantly. Donald Trump is the only politician I know of who lies more than Bill Clinton did. He lies more than Joe Biden does. And Joe Biden lies a lot. He lies about his past. He makes up stories. And again, this is not about his alleged or real senility or anything like that. He's been lying and making up stuff his entire political career. But still, I think Trump's credibility is terrible. Now, I was, I was never a huge Comey guy, but um, uh, it turns out that Comey's credibility is even worse than I thought it was back in 2017 or something. That's fine. Happy to admit that. Turns out he was much more of a hack than I thought. Um, I think it's really funny. He's now doing um, novels. Um, you know, and I think it's, I mean, the funny part is not that it's free to do novels. I think it's kind of sad that he's can't really find work or is, you know, in, in the law. Uh, but like the f- title of his first novel is Upper West Side, which is just so on the nose for his actual core constituency. Um, that I just kind of think it's funny. Um, but, uh, Anyway, I, I mean, I, I don't want to, people on this podcast don't like hearing about Twitter grief I get, but my God, did I get a lot of Twitter grief. I mean, people were hoping my dogs got hit by cars. You know, people were, um, you know, just losing their minds attacking me for, I don't know, 48, 72 hours. And, um, and, and part because I refused to back down. Um, I got put on, you know, my response to everybody was what I just told you. I don't back off on it. I stand by it. Um, you know, but all these people, what, one of the problems is you get, you get a lot of people who just lump you in a category with other uh, people without knowing the specifics of your own, my own position. And my own position always was, I was always kind of like hands off, not following closely the whole Russia collusion stuff. Um, you know, go back and go back and show me where I really got all bought into that stuff. Um, where you know, and let me help you out before you start sending me stuff that I don't think rebuts what I just said. Um, my position from very early on was, I think it's possible that Trump is up to no good with Putin. I mean, I don't think it's a matter of character. It's something that he wouldn't do. I don't think it's, uh, and we know from the Trump Tower meeting, I remember writing a big corner post about how, you know, I had remained agnostic until this moment. And I still don't know what the, larger story is, but my position was, we now know at least that they were willing to collude with Russia in some way because they had that meeting and like they said they wanted to collude with Russia about stuff. And they were disappointed when it wasn't the kind of dirt that they were hoping to get. Um, you had, uh, oh God, what's his name? His last name's Lot, the economist. I'm sorry. I'm suffering from, I have this, there's this new word um, that I, I, I love, I think I got the right pronunciation. It's lethologica. And it is the inability to remember a particular word or name. And uh, um, 
I'm trying to commit the word to memory, but I'm suffering from left. I often suffer from lethologica about new words that I want to commit to memory. Um, but anyway, uh, James Lott, the guy who, you know, the, the, the more guns, less crime guy. He attacked me, impugned my integrity last week or two weeks ago, um, said that, you know, he had this incredibly idiotic insult where you said, you know, because he was, he, it started because he was outraged that I didn't believe Trump's explanation that when he asked Russia to hack Hillary's emails, he was just joking. And that thing has been so gone over. Go watch the video. He repeats it. The audience doesn't laugh. He just, he subsequently defended the statement. He defended the uh, the practice of taking foreign stuff. It was not a joke. It, you know, he called it a joke every now and then when he thought it was getting in trouble if people took it seriously. But he does that about all sorts of things where he just claims he was joking. Um, it was, you know, anyway, I think Lot clowned himself with the whole thing, but he was sort of, he was just attacking my integrity, saying that like, um, I, you know, he was like, I guess you care more about having an LA Times column uh, than telling the truth or something like that, which I just thought was this remarkable bit of projection. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing that, it's the kind of way he thinks about how he behaves in the world and just assuming sort of like foreign policy mirroring kind of thing, assumes that that's how I think about it. You know, I've, I've had my LA Times column for almost coming up on 20 years, I guess. I mean, since 20, since 19, since what, what, 2007? So a little while, a little, little, not quite 20 years, more, but more than 15. Um, anyway, uh, people went nuts about it. And anyway, I think that, you know, the fact is, is that, you know, like Trump is a man of incredibly low integrity. Uh, he's dishonest. The fact that Comey turned out to be more dishonest than we uh, or then some, you know, some people had him pegged along. I, you know, my wife worked at the DOJ uh, around the same time as Comey. I know lots of people who are at the DOJ with Comey. You know, a lot of my right-wing friends have never liked Comey going back to the days with Ashcroft um, and the death, you know, and the, the hospital bed, you know, confrontation thing. Um, they always thought he was a showboater. That's one of the reasons why I was never all invested in, in Comey. Anyway, I can't remember what point I was going to try and finish there. So I, I apologize for that. Um, but all I'm saying on the, on the Trump tape is, you know, just wait and see if Smith has got him dead to rights. It's kind of weird that they're leaking all this stuff. Um, because usually you leak stuff like this to, um, make up for the fact that yet you don't have them dead to rights. So we'll see, but sort of like my, uh, position with the Trump, with the Russia collusion stuff, do I think it's possible that Trump knew he was violating the law and just didn't care? Absolutely. So we'll see what goes with that. Um, all right, so let's talk about the DeSantis situation. I'm very torn about this because on the one hand, I've spent years and years talking about how I found anti-anti-Trumpism to be uh, sort of a quasi-pathetic dodge often. Um, and... I don't really feel like I want to move off of that position, but I am, I, I can't say that I'm anti, anti DeSantis because there's some things that I think DeSantis has done that really piss me off. And I don't just mean like how he ran for governor, which I've talked about a million times. I mean, like, um, letting his people get into this weird, um, 
This was unfolding yesterday. Trump was at an event, I guess, in Iowa, defending to some extent his, you know, support for Operation Warp Speed, which was great, right? I mean, let's, again, I'm trying to be intellectually honest here. Operation Warp Speed was great. Trump deserves a lot of credit for Operation Warp Speed. It was a good thing. Saved lots of lives. He should be proud of it. Um, the problem is the people who, sh- who love the vaccine and should be grateful for Operation Warp Speed um, hate Trump for other reasons, so they're never going to be persuaded by it. And the people who hate the vaccine um, love Trump, <laughs> and uh, they don't want to hear him talk about how great the vaccine was. So he's kind of in this funky, weird bind. And anyway, DeSantis's people, you know, the DeSantis war room, Twitter account and that kind of thing, were trying to do this weird carom shot thing or bank shot thing where they criticize Trump for not acknowledging all the problems with vaccines. And I don't like DeSantis's flirting with anti-vax stuff. And I think it's bad. And I'm not going to overlook it. I'm not going to lie about it. And this is the problem with being anti-anti, right? It's sort of like anti-anti-communism. That's where the formulation... I, my understanding originally comes from is that when you're anti-anti-something, you end up dismissing, ignoring, downplaying, minimizing, etc. perfectly legitimate criticisms by going into this defensive crouch, just say, stop criticizing Trump or Stalin or whoever, because that's not um, where we should be. It's a form of popular front thinking. And it was funny when I announced that Dave Bonson was going to be on the remnant on Twitter, someone, and I asked for questions, someone came at me and said, are you and Bonson, you and Bonson need to talk about how you need to start carrying water for DeSantis or we're going to be stuck with Trump again or something more colorful. And I said to the guy, you know, look, I just spent seven years talking about how I don't think I should carry water for politicians out of some sort of partisan, you know, popular front kind of thing. And I'm not going to start doing that for DeSantis. So with all of those caveats in mind, I'm pretty sympathetic to the anti-anti-DeSantis position in a few regards. First of all, I think a lot of his alleged sins are overblown. Um, If you look into, and again, I don't like what he did with Disney. I think it was politically unwise. I think it was policy-wise bad, all that kind of stuff. I'm not trying to carry water for the guy. There are lots of things I dislike, but... First of all, I just have nothing but exhaustion with people who have been saying that Trump is a unique threat to the American um, political system. He's uniquely unqualified. He's uniquely unfit. But, oh, now that it makes sense for a new Lincoln Project rollout, uh, we should say that DeSantis is worse. And I don't think DeSantis is worse than Trump. DeSantis would not be my first choice for president. He would not be my second choice for president. He would not be my third choice for president. But if he's the only one who could beat Trump in the GOP primaries, he is my first choice for the nomination uh, for the GOP, just as a matter of strategic voting. That doesn't mean I'm on the DeSantis train or anything like that. And frankly, I think uh, my understanding is that the last thing in the world that DeSantis people is for want is for people like me and, say, David French to come out four square behind DeSantis. But if I were four square behind DeSantis, I would say so too. I'm just not into the sort of endorsement kind of politics stuff. And I think this whole sort of like, do you support so-and-so kind of thing is a kind of magical thinking. I think DeSantis is much more of a normal politician than people think. I would have profound disagreements with him about 
public policy if he were president of the United States, I suspect. But I think the real Ron DeSantis is a nerdy guy who, you know, reads his briefing papers and, and homework. And go back and look, I've been writing for over 15 years now about my, one of my biggest problems with um, GOP politics is the number of presidential candidates who refuse to do their homework. Um, Mitt Romney did his homework. It's one of the things I, I admired about him greatly. Just do your homework. Read, you know, read the friggin' binder. If you could have, you know, like charisma, charismatic attachment, that sort of inorganic, that sort of organic bond with the masses that populists have and all that kind of stuff that comes from charisma and all that. If Mitt Romney could have bought that, he would have bought it because he could afford it. But he didn't have it. And so instead what he did was he did his homework. He compensated by doing, you know, doing his due diligence. And, um, DeSantis is sort of like Romney in that regard. He, he doesn't have the sort of natural charisma, the natural connection with audiences, but he does his homework. And I'd rather a president, even one who I think is wrong on some issues, who does their homework than one who is charming and funny and entertaining, but doesn't do their homework. And if there's anybody in American public political life of the last, you know, 100 years that has made it to the presidency, certainly, who didn't do their homework is it's Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump is just powerfully ignorant. Doesn't mean he's dumb, uh, but he, by his own account, follows his instincts rather than his intellect. And he thinks his instincts are what make him a genius. And, you know, instincts can steer you wrong, particularly if you're an old man. So anyway, I think, you know, uh, it doesn't look like DeSantis is catching fire. I think he's had... I thought the, the Twitter spaces thing was dumb and sort of political malpractice. And which is not to say he couldn't do a Twitter spaces thing. Just the idea of announcing your candidacy with audio only on this thing that most people can't figure out how to get on. And even more people don't even know what it is. was just dumb. It was very sort of inside the bubble, inside the bunker kind of thinking on display. But also because of that, it, I don't think it did any particular damage. I mean, it didn't do any lasting damage. Um, for now, I, I think I pointed this out last week on the Dispatch podcast. It could come back to haunt him because political reporting is often, you know, trend pieces are often, you know, uh, all they need is like three examples to prove a trend. And he, he is now given one really good example of a campaign that misreads the moment that screws up on important things. And if he has two more of them, then you've got three, right? So you'd rather not have, you would rather have had a great photo op, a great soundbite, a big crowd saying nice things and all that. And, um, which wouldn't have mattered that much, except it would have, there would have been no downside to it. And instead the Twitter thing was stupid, but again, I don't think it was supremely important either. But since then, I think he's done a pretty good job. I think the whole sort of he yelled at a reporter thing has been wildly exaggerated. I think the effort, and this gets my, this is the essence of my anti-anti-DeSantis stuff. I think the effort to turn him into a demon figure is misguided if it's coming from people who honestly and sincerely, or at least what used to honestly and sincerely think it would be calamitous to have Donald Trump back in the White House. It's not obvious to me that DeSantis can beat Biden. I think DeSantis would do better against Biden than Donald Trump would. 
I just think DeSantis is a much more normal politician than um, people think he is. I agree with Matt Continetti that he's got a different theory of the case about how to deal with American dysfunction, American problems, wokeness, whatever, insofar as he's a guy who wants to turn the institutions around against the left. Um, I think he's going to have, even if he becomes president, he would have limited success with that. But that doesn't mean, you know, the successes he did have would necessarily be all bad. The devil's in the details kind of thing. I do think that if you're going to have a serious strategy about, I mean, like when he promises that uh, he's going to put the left on the dustbin of history, that's stupid. And it's, but it's political hyperbole. And, you know, the people who want to make it sound as if you should take everything DeSantis says um, literally, they're just trying to scare people into sort of, and it's, it's sort of super PAC BS as far as I can tell. You know, it's sort of like speaking of super PACs, the New Republic has been on this tear about raising money to fight to save the Supreme Court from Ron DeSantis or something. And they had this thing, you know, on Twitter the other day announced, I know I'm very Twitter heavy today. That's because I'm unprepared. They had this thing on Twitter the other day about how Ron DeSantis has a plan to make the Supreme Court seven to two majority conservative. And, you know, as I pointed out, actually every Republican running for the job has a very similar plan to appoint conservative justices. Um, the idea that, like, this is unique to Ron DeSantis is sort of nuts. Uh, that's where I stand on all that. People need to calm down a little bit. If, if, if you're a strategic voter, you know, if, you're, if you've been telling me for the last, as, as some of our friends of the Bulwark have been doing, been telling me for the last, you know, seven years or five years or three years, whatever it is, that opposition to Trump means you have to vote for Democrats and, you know, put aside all of your ideological and moral commitments because Trump is that much of a threat and, um, and you should not ask for anything in return from Democrats for your vote for your support. And now you're saying that, you know, you should have the same philosophy about Ron DeSantis. It tells me you're basically just a Democrat. And that's fine. There's no dishonor in being a Democrat. But, you know, the way you get the GOP to move on from Trump is to defeat Trump in the primaries. And I'm all in favor of doing that, right? I would much rather Tim Scott or Nikki Haley or, or Chris Sununu or Mike Pence, you know, basically the field. I mean, even even Vivek Ramaswamy, who I think is a bit of a fraud, be fine with any of them beating Trump. And there's some I would prefer beating Trump, or most, I think. But this sort of sense of panic from people like, oh, we're not going to be able to yell about Donald Trump anymore, so we have to turn DeSantis into the next Donald Trump, I just think is, is annoying and wrong. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Speaking of annoying and wrong, I get really, 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 really frustrated by the whole transgender issue. I think there are just an enormous number of different and competing things going on with it. I think there is bad faith on all, all across the spectrum to one extent or another. Um, I'm not saying I'm the only one who's operating in good faith on this. There are lots of people operating in good faith. I'm talking about at the level of like activists and that kind of stuff. Um, um, and the media uh, I think there's just both right and left wing media. I just think there's a lot of deliberate fomenting of anger and paranoia. You know, you, you'll find these pieces every now and then, particularly after that transgender shooting where all of a sudden they made transgender people, the victims and refused to release the, the shooters manifesto, which, you know, the manifesto would have been released if it was, you know, a white supremacist or an anti-Semite. Um, uh, they turned it into a thing where it's like the real, the real lesson of this transgender person going into a, what was it? A bank and shooting up the place or mall. Um, the real lesson is that, uh, transgender people are in danger and it's never been more dangerous time to be transgender. And you hear that phrase every now and then or versions of it. And this is just like one of the examples of what I'm getting at is like, Actually, this is the greatest time in all of human history, at least all of American history, um, to be transgender. And uh, it's more celebrated. It's more accepted. It's more corporatized. It's, uh, 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 you know, more than any time in, in history. I mean, people have been dressing up in drag and all that kind of stuff. And not just like drag queens. I mean, go watch Milton Berle or Old Bugs Bunny cartoons Flip Wilson. I mean, this has been a shtick for a very long time. Now, I understand for the people with gender dysphoria, it's not shtick. It's something else. But my point is, like, for people with gender dysphoria, uh, this is the greatest time to be alive um, in American history. And I would argue that's one of the reasons why we have so much gender dysphoria this, these days is in part because it is culturally subsidized. It's simultaneously celebrated, but also seen as transgressive. And in American culture, that's a recipe for getting more of it. Um, when you tell people that it's rebellious, but also that you're awesome for being rebellious, you get a lot more of it. And that's it's in one of the inherent flaws in our culture. There's a deep and rich history of it. Jacques the bourgeoisie goes back a long, long way. Um, and my own sort of personal convictions in my personal life is to just treat people with dignity and respect. You know, at people know, I've talked about this a million times. I'm a big fan of Deirdre McCloskey. I've done events with her more than once. You know, she was born Donald McCloskey. And I just have nothing but, you know, respect for her. And I would always treat her with respect in person and all that kind of stuff. But there is this bullying involved in this whole thing that I do not respond well to. Particularly because it has such a political valence to it. You know, there's this great passage in politics and the English language, uh, Orwell says, in our time, political speech and writing are largely the defense of the indefensible. Things like the continuance of British rule in India, 
the Russian purges and deportations, the dropping of the atom bombs on Japan, can indeed be defended, but only by arguments which are too brutal for most people to face and which do not square with the professed aims of political parties. Thus, political language has to consist largely of euphemism, question-begging, and sheer cloudy vagueness. Defenseless villages are bombarded from the air, the inhabitants driven out into the countryside, the cattle machine gun, the, the huts set on fire with incendiary bullets. This is called pacification. Millions of peasants are robbed of their farms and sent trudging along the roads with no more than they can carry. This is called transfer of population or rectification of frontiers. People are imprisoned for years without trial or shot in the back of the neck or sent to die of scurvy in Arctic lumber camps. This is called elimination of unreliable elements. Such phraseology is needed if one wants to name things without calling up mental pictures of them. Consider, for instance, some comfortable English professor defending Russian totalitarianism. He cannot say outright, I believe in killing off your opponents when you can get good results by doing so. Probably, therefore, he will say something like this, and this is Orwell imagining what someone would say about this practice. While freely conceding that the Soviet regime exhibits certain features which the humanitarian may be inclined to deplore, we must, I think, agree that a certain curtailment of the right to political opposition is an unavoidable comicant of trans transitional periods and that the rigors which the Russian people have been called upon to undergo have been amply justified in the sphere of concrete achievement. And then Orwell continues, this inflated style is itself a kind of euphemism. A mass of Latin words falls upon the facts like soft snow, blurring the outlines and covering up all the details. The great enemy of clear language is insincerity. When there is a gap between one's real and one's declared aims, one turns, as it were, instinctively to long words and exhausted idioms like a cuttlefish spurting out ink. In our age, there is no such thing as, quote, keeping out of politics, unquote. All issues are political issues, and politics itself a mass of lies, evasions, folly, hatred, and schizophrenia. When the general atmosphere is bad, language must suffer. I should expect to find, this is a guess, which I have not sufficient knowledge to verify, that the German, Russian, and Italian languages have all deteriorated in the last 10 or 15 years as a result of dictatorship. But if thought corrupts language, language can also corrupt thought. A bad usage can spread by tradition and imitation, even among people who should, should and do know better. The debased language that I've been discussing is in some ways very convenient. And then he goes on and on and on. I mean, it's, it's a, one of the greatest essays in the English language. And um, I tried in a way to make Tyranny Clichés, my underrated second book, an homage to the spirit of that essay. And again, failed in all sorts of ways. But um, getting back to the transgender thing, USA Today had a story about women, which is the relevant part of the population, not all women, but uh, it's the relevant part of the population that can bear children. And that is a medical fact, right? Um, I understand that as a matter of cultural construct and whatever, there are people who were 
born biological males that we're supposed to call women. Um, I get it. I think it's a more complicated thing than a lot of people want to simplify it. But at the end of the day, I am sort of on just the side of, of clarity of language and truth. And so anyway, you know, you heard that Al Pacino, which I think is kind of gross, even though I'm very pro-baby, Al Pacino at age 83 is having a kid. There's just something unseemly about actuarially having a very low probability of being able to see your kid turn five. Um, that bothers me. But I'm not second guessing the woman who had the baby. I don't know any of the facts about it. It's just really old dudes having relations with really with much younger women. There's just something about it. Creeps me out. Anyway, uh, USA Today had this tweet about this article that they wrote. And I'll read it. This is me reading it verbatim. Al Pacino's news exposes a frustrating truth. Those who want to bear children face a biological clock while their partners can wait decades longer. Now, if you just had that on a chalkboard and you had no knowledge about politics or stuff, you'd think that was a crazy sentence. Or if you were someone from Mars, you would think that literally it's the wanting to bear children that creates a biological clock, right? Those who want to bear children face a biological clock while their partners can wait decades longer. It's as if, if you don't want to bear the child, you can wait decades because there's no biological clock. But if you want to bear the child, that ex annelio creates a biological clock, right? And really what they're trying to avoid here is that women have shorter biological clocks than men do in terms of being able to, you know, that sperm viability lasts a lot longer than egg viability does. This is just a fact. It's a painful fact for a lot of people. Um, there are ways to deal with it that are of, you know, varying degrees of efficacy and all that. But like the need to talk around these basic facts, I find offensive. It just bothers me. And look, there are, there are social untruths. I don't mean like in a platonic way or in a Sorelian way about the vital lie, right? The noble lie stuff. I just mean like society works on certain fictions that we all agree is a matter of manners not to get too deep into. And I get that. I just don't think that this is one of them. And I think there's just something profoundly bullying and sort of mildly culturally totalitarian about saying that everybody has to conform to this construction. It's like when DeSantis, you know, corrected some reporter about gender affirming care. Gender affirming care really is a very, in the going back to the passage I read you, a very Orwellian construction, right? I mean, Orwell would say they call it gender affirming care, but they, what they really mean is cutting off genitalia of children or at least teens, right? And that should make people feel uncomfortable. I'm not saying it's always wrong. You know, there's all sorts of, you know, we can, can all, I don't want to get into all the deep weeds about the caveats and the counterexamples and exceptions to the rule and intersects this and all the rest, right? I mean, there are things going on. You know, Rich Lowry had this uh, column, he made this point the other week about how, um, sorry, my lethological is kicking in. Um, the crazy, attractive actress was in the first Transformers movie. Uh, gosh, I can't remember her name. Um, don't email it to me. I'll remember 10 seconds after I hit stop recording. 
But anyway, super hot. And she has body dysphoria. And nobody says to her, we should all just conform to your view that you're fat when you're not or that you're ugly when you're not, right? And I understand it's not a, it's not a perfect analogy because there's all sorts of others. That's the sort of transgressive thing, the rebellious thing, the celebratory thing that feeds into this. And, and I'm sure a dozen other psychological factors that causes, you know, men to say that they're biological men to say they're women or biological women to say they're men. And, and if this was something that only happened to people above the age of 21, um, I'd have a sort of a different attitude about it. It's one of the reasons I haven't cared much about it over the years is because most of the transgender stuff of the sort that we're talking about is, you know, the cases you'd hear about were of, you know, like older dudes who, you know, decided fairly late in life that they wanted to sort of switch teams as it were. But when this starts playing into kids, I just think it's something that you have to take more seriously and not cloud it up with all of this euphemism. And, you know, and it's, it's interesting to me is that, you know, speaking broadly with lots of exceptions, right, this is a generalization, but as a generalization for the last hundred years, uh, progressives or the left, um, cultural, liberal elites, urban elites, whatever labels you want to use, have generally been inclined towards arguments to say, let's look to what Europe is doing. Let's follow Europe's lead. Let's be more like Europe. Well, most of Europe profoundly disagree. And I want to say most of Europe, I mean like the medical experts and the medical establishments, including in places like Sweden, they disagree with the whole gender affirming care thing for minors. Go check out the economist story on this. That should at least cause you not to say the people who have qualms about some of this stuff are bigots, right? I, I got, I got no problem, none being told I'm wrong. If you want to provide the argument for why I'm wrong, that's even better. That's great, you know, and I'm going to concede in advance because I can I can smell it coming in the comments already. Some of my complaints don't apply in all instances. And there's some places where, you know, uh, gender reassignment makes total sense. And I agree with that. And that's fine. But we're talking about a level of generalization. There are going to be exceptions to the rule. And that's fine. And I concede it. But don't give me the one counterexample and then say this proves that all of the other examples are, are justified as well. Anyway, what I'm just getting at is, is that there is this, like, it is a sign of lack of confidence in the actual merits of your position if you shroud everything in euphemism, right? I mean, this is my problem going back to George Lakoff's stuff about linguistics, right? Where he became this guru of the Democratic Party for a while, arguing that, you know, we should stop calling them trial lawyers and call them community protection attorneys. And we should stop calling taxes, taxes and call them membership fees. And I find that generally this obsession with words, as I mean, I, I've talked about this before, this idea that words are magic steers everybody ultimately on the left and the right into bad places. Yeah, words matter. Words are my living. I'm a big believer in labels. I think labels matter because that's how we communicate ideas. But you can put too much emphasis in the power of words and labels. When you start talking about them as if they have alchemy-like powers where they can transmogrify reality and bend it towards your worldview, right? When it becomes a tool of solipsism and myopia, that when you start arguing about 
the words as if the words are things. How can you be against gender affirming care? If you just change it to how can you be against removing the penis of a, of a 12 year old boy? I mean, like it might still be an argument to do that, but every normal person would can at least intuitively understand why you might have a problem with it. That's why, you know, DeSantis made that line about how, look, it's not gender affirming care. It's mutilation. Now it may not be mutilation in all cases, but my point is, is like, and mutilation may be a loaded word in some cases. I'm, I'm open to all of that. I'm really trying hard to be open-minded about all of this stuff. Just the idea that somehow we have to get rid of words like mother, that we have to treat that mother, biological motherhood, all of these things. And biological motherhood is not the only form of motherhood, all of motherhood and all that kind of stuff. I talked about that a bunch. Uh, I, you know, I did a solo podcast about a month ago about how much I hated Margie Taylor Greene's thing about how if you're not a biological mother, you're not a real mother, you know, which is just such a grotesque thing for pro-life, nominally pro-life people to say, given that, you know, one of the keys to reducing abortion is to encourage adoption and adoptive mothers are mothers. Um, anyway, I'm trying to be open-minded about it, but there's just so much emphasis on if we can just play with the words, everything else will fall into place. If we can win the argument about the labels, reality will flow. And I find it particularly vexatious sometimes on the right, how Foucaultian, you know, so many people on the right have gotten um, about, you know, this is one of my problems with DeSantis is this obsession with narratives. If we just change the narratives. We don't like the media's narratives. We have to create our own narratives. It's like, you know, what creates new narratives, new facts, right? Change the facts on the ground and the narratives will follow. You know, it's like this fairly idiotic brouhaha about Chick-fil-A, where it turns out Chick-fil-A since 2020 has had some vice president for DEI or whatever. No, I don't like DEI stuff. I don't like what it's become. All that kind of thing, right? I mean, we talked about this a little on the Dispatch podcast. I don't like a lot of the sort of, I mean, I, I basically see, not at the Dispatch, not at AI, but like a lot of HR personnel, um, particularly at, you know, universities and stuff, um, and particularly people like deans of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and that kind of stuff, they just strike me as ideological officers. This stuff has gotten way out of hand and all that kind of stuff. But the problem with DEI isn't the word DEI. Diversity absent context is a fine thing. I mean, sometimes diversity is great, and sometimes diversity isn't great. It depends what we're talking about, right? Similarly, equity, equity, Depends on the context. What do you mean by equity? And, you know, and what's under what circumstances? Inclusion. Inclusion can be good or bad. I mean, this is one of my problems with the way we use language more broadly is that we often imbue utterly amoral terms with deep moral content, right? I mean, unity can be good or bad. I mean, I don't need to do that whole thing again, but you get my point. And so the fact that like Chick-fil-A has a DEI, um, officer or vice president or executive or whatever was treated by a bunch of very online um, right people who are just sort of all coked up over the Bud Light thing and, and started talking about boycotting, you know, Chick-fil-A, which I think will fail just on its face. But unless you can point to the actual policies that you object to at, um, Chick-fil-A, simply having someone with that title, I mean, you can make an argument they should have given them some other title or not, but ultimately, who gives a rat's ass? You are imbuing in 
the phrase, the acronym DEI, magical properties that are sort of demonic, that um, do not need to be connected to specific policies. And um, you get this kind of thing all the time. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's baked into the left with all the triggering language and, you know, problematic words and stuff. But there's a lot of it on the right um, where, you know, people get upset about words a lot. And it's the hypocrisy of people on the right who, in other contexts, are constantly talking about how, you know, um, you know, free speech is everything and speech is and violence and, and, and all that. They have the same problems with sort of the culture of the First Amendment that a lot of people on the left do. And, um, you know, words are not things. And, um, and I'm not saying that words don't matter. Words matter enormously. But, you know, words need a connection to a reality um, most of the time to be important. Yeah, uh, it would be hugely important or significant and, and bad if the president of the United States, like, just, drop the N-word on stage, right? That would be bad. And it doesn't have to have a connection to any policy to be bad. So it's not a hard and fast rule. But, you know, there are a lot of people who just invest in sort of ideological labels, um, importance and significance and, and, and power independent about, of what they're actually doing. And um, I find it kind of exhausting. And anyway, getting back to the transgender thing, like... Let's just stipulate that having gender dysphoria, whatever the correct term is, I don't know if it's out of favor yet, because that's the other thing that drives me crazy is people keep changing whether or not certain terms are acceptable or not, just so they can beat up the people who still use the old terms. But let's just sort of stipulate it's a, it's a, it's a condition that is beyond normal choice. It's, that, it's not a question of agency. It's something, you know, either congenital, genetic, or, or deeply psychological in a non-pejorative way that just simply says this is a reality and that it's some sort of tragedy, right? Or misfortune or mistake of some kind that someone was born in the wrong body and they want to remedy it. Well, just from the get-go, that's a problem. I guess we're not supposed to say handicap, right? It's, you're differently abled. You've got your... You've been born into a situation that is going to invite more hassles and problems for you than they're going to happen to someone who is born correctly into the same gender as their sex. I'm totally open as a society that we should treat people like this with respect and dignity. Got no problem with it. And I understand it's a problem when people get mad at me for making the comparison. I'm just doing it to illustrate a point. I'm not saying they're the same thing in any direction, in either direction. But if you're born without a leg, it is in the nature of having only one leg, that certain options are not going to be available to you. That certain opportunities that require two biological legs are going to be out of your reach. And that doesn't mean we don't treat people who are born with only one leg with, you know, disrespect. Doesn't mean we're bigoted against them, but you know, they're not going to be on the basketball team. They're not going to be on the track team. Maybe you can figure out how to be inclusive for them to be, you know, rock climbers. I mean, there are other things that people can do, but you're going to have different, just different set of rules and expectations for such people. And I don't think that you can be incredibly generous as a society or as an institution 
and how you try to make those people feel as valued and as respected as possible, while at the same time saying, look, there's some things that are just not options. And it just does not seem to me to be unreasonable that society could come to a different accommodation than the one that is being shoved down a lot of people's throats on this stuff, that we have to pretend that being born biological male, that having testosterone in your system um, is irrelevant to you being on a weightlifting, a women's weightlifting team or a track team. I think it is unfair to um, girls, to women, to uh, obliterate these distinctions. And it is unfair to society to expect everybody to play the emperor has, you know, uh, you know, the emperor's new clothes game on these issues. And maybe it's because I grew up as a conservative and very liberal New York city um, with conservative parents. And I've been a media critic to one point or another for my entire adult life. And um, I went to a very feminist college where I was always at odds with people. Maybe it's just, just how I'm wired or my life experience. But for the most part, I don't see anybody with like some special moral authority that I should be deferring to here on these questions. You know, just because you have some degree in trans this or gender that, or you're the head of an organization, an LGBTQI, whatever organization, that somehow I have to defer to your judgments and your language on this without an argument, without any attempt at persuasion, but just through moral bullying um, and repetition and um, contempt from, you know, the commanding heights of the culture in a lot of respects. I just resent it. I just reject it. I feel very or Orwell-like in it. I feel like I, I hate when people are lying to me and when they make me feel like the bad guy for not going along with the lie. I just, I resent it profoundly. And I'm trying to figure out a way to, with with honesty and grace and decency, figure out, a sort of middle position on this stuff that doesn't fill me with anger when I see like the, the cover of the British version of Glamour magazine have um, what looks like a dude with um, uh, who's eight months pregnant and you can go look at it for yourself. And like, like I, I want to know, like, like this guy is, this person has facial hair and chest hair, or at least appears to, who knows what was done with Photoshop or whatever. Um, are they really taking hormone blockers? Well, is this biological woman? Is this trans man really taking various hormone blockers or testosterone and that kind of thing while pregnant? Right? I mean, it seems to me either we're being lied to by the just general implications of the cover, or there's some really grotesque child abuse kind of thing going on. I mean, I just don't know the answers to it, but like, that's where my head goes. My head does not go, oh, isn't that wonderful? What a great society we are, or the Brits are, or whatever. Again, you know, kudos to Glamour Magazine. Anyway, I just, I don't like the way some people, I don't, I don't like the way a lot of people on the left or the right talk about the trans stuff because they start turning people into abstractions and there's a lot of, there's a, either, there's a lot of demonization either of trans people or of critics of the trans stuff that I think goes over the top. But um, I, anyway, I think it's pretty clear where I came down. Anyway, I was going to 
sort of reprise the Wednesday G file um, a little bit, but I've gone too long. And so I'm going to stop here. Um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll revisit the issues that I raised in the um, G file maybe next week, certainly again, because it's, it's sort of, I, I don't mean to get all sort of like come and sit with me on the porch as I um, break out my woodland stick and drink iced tea and give you some life advice kind of thing. But um, I really believe, you know, what I wrote about in the, in the G file about how you get or one way to get towards a happy, balanced life. And I'm really gratified that it struck a chord with a lot of people. Yeah, there was some dyspeptic stuff in the comments too. But for the most part, um, I got a lot of great feedback on it. And I'm, I'm grateful for it because it was a weird thing to sort of lay bare like that. Um, uh, my wife hasn't read it yet, so I'm kind of terrified what she thinks about it. Um, and if you're not a subscriber to The Dispatch, you could be and you could read it yourself. It's, uh, it's called Your Life Portfolio and Ours, which is a vague Norman Padora's deep cut. Um, but that's another topic for another day. Thanks so much for listening. Again, seriously, please, if you can become a dispatch member, that would be fantastic. And I'm sorry about all the frumfering and repetitiveness at the beginning. Maybe you'll never hear it because Adam will be gifted in his editing of this thing. Um, though usually he has a very light touch, which I think sometimes is his way of trying to undermine me. Um, so anyway, uh, thanks again. And I will talk to you later. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.